Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand-to-hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. In 1979, new African prison rebels in the California system declared an annual celebration of Black August, a month set aside to mourn fallen comrades and continue their fight. On August 7, 1970, Jonathan Jackson was killed while attempting to storm the Marin County Courthouse and free black urban guerrillas who were on trial there. A year later, on August 21, 1971, his older brother George Jackson was assassinated by guards in San Quentin. This murder helped catalyze the Great Uprising in Attica, New York. Continuing the tradition of prisoners' struggles in this month, there's a national call for solidarity with the fight to end prison labor. On August 19th, there is a Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March in Washington, D.C., alongside many smaller demonstrations planned inside and outside prisons across the country. More information on this can be found at incarceratedworkers.org. We just received word that Florida has placed every prison there on indefinite lockdown in anticipation of the protests tomorrow, August 19th, against prison labor. This means that all 97,000 prisoners will be denied access to visits, educational activities, religious services, and AA programs. They already lack air conditioning and access to some basic toiletries, with many indicating that this measure will only exacerbate the clashes disturbing many of the facilities. Many prisons are now permitting people to communicate with their loved ones only through video and phone calls. In fact, 74% of prisons banned in-person visits when they established video visitation. Yet studies have shown that permitting incarcerated people to have regular in-person visits with their loved ones decreases their probability of reincarceration. Further, 2.7 million children in the U.S. have at least one incarcerated parent, and failing to allow in-person visitation hurts families attempting to stay together. A new bill has been introduced called the Video Visitation and Inmate Calling in Prisons Act of 2017. The bill would maintain in-person visitation and regulate video visitation and calling services used in prisons. Specifically, the bill offers three solutions. One, it ensures that video visitation supplements and doesn't replace in-person visits. Two, it requires that the Federal Communications Commission sees that the prices of video visits and phone calls are reasonable, fair, and just. And three, it requires the Bureau of Prisons to set up guidelines governing the agency's purchase and use of video visitation to supplement in-person visits. Tennessee Judge Sam Benningfield is promoting forcible sterilization in the form of vasectomies or long-acting reversible contraceptives for incarcerated people addicted to opioids. In return, those people obtain 30 days off their jail sentences. Bennington's view is that having children can complicate recovery for people with drug addiction. Over 70 inmates have gone along with the deal, but civil rights groups, including the ACLU, object because the program is coercive. In the 20th century, various social groups were sterilized forcibly in the name of eugenics. 
Such programs mostly involved people of color, poor people, and disabled people. In 2014, California Governor Jerry Brown signed a bill banning forced sterilization in prisons after it came to light that over 20 women in the state's prisons had been forced into supposedly consenting to sterilization. And the Tennessee Department of Health opposes Spending Fields program. On August 6, the New York Times reported that the administration of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is giving over $7 million in grants to colleges and universities around the state to offer courses to prisoners. The grant program will provide classes to about 2,500 incarcerated people. In a recent interview, the Manhattan District Attorney said the classes were part of a public safety strategy to decrease recidivism, with that goal being the first premise of penal law. Currently, inmates are already eligible for classes in about half the state's 54 prisons, but those classes are funded predominantly by private sources. Only about a thousand inmates currently take college-level classes. Under Cuomo's plan, seven colleges and universities will offer courses in 17 state prisons. Only inmates with five years or less of their sentence left will be permitted to take classes. This Tuesday, August 22nd, the state of Missouri is set to execute prisoner Marcellus Williams. Williams was convicted of a 1988 murder by a nearly all-white jury for which he has consistently maintained his innocence. His sentence was previously stayed in order to allow attorneys to acquire DNA testing. Those results did not match his DNA, and to this day, no forensic evidence has linked Williams to the murder. Williams' lawyers applied to stay his execution but were denied by the Missouri Supreme Court. July 12th marked the fourth anniversary of Judge Shira Scheinlin's ruling that stop-and-frisk practices are unconstitutional and racially discriminatory. As part of the ruling, the judge ordered a court-appointed monitor to oversee a series of reforms to the New York Police Department policing practices. She also ordered a joint remedial process to solicit input from a variety of stakeholders, including New York communities most directly affected by policing. Four years on, despite some progress, Documented stops are down, but many encounters with police aren't recorded. The following letter was sent to us from a friend of Keith Washington, who was in our Toxic in Texas episode. On July 26th, he wrote, Today the heat index reached 107 degrees Fahrenheit. It is suffocatingly hot and all the fan does is circulate superheated air. Please note that there have been authoritative scientific studies on the detrimental effects of using fans in this type of heat. You know this. TDCJ's claim that, quote, we believe those mitigation efforts are effective, unquote, is not based on fact or reality. The truth is there is no mitigation effort being made. We received cool water one time today and no showers. Today I found out that not even the inmates in population are receiving cool-down showers. Where are these mitigation efforts? The guy I interviewed was the prisoner passing out cool water. He said, hey, this is the Eastham unit. We're way on the country. You know they do what they want here. This was on the subject of cool-down showers. Climate change is real, and TDCS and the state of Texas continue to reject convincing evidence that our planet is becoming increasingly hotter. The non-acknowledgement of this extreme heat is part of the inhumane punishment in Texas prisons. I am a chronic seizure patient. I take medication, and this extreme heat has brought on numerous seizures in the past. Now, today, July 26, 2017, the whole unit was placed on lockdown. 
To be trapped in these cells like this in the extreme heat temperatures is absolute torture. And I challenge Jason Clark to bring journalists to the Eastham unit, ad seg unit at 4 p.m. on any day in August and tell us how lackluster these wonderful mitigations are. When you combine toxic water, extreme heat, roaches, rats, and black mold, the totality of these conditions clearly violate the Eighth Amendment. And that is why inmates at Easton Unit and Caulfield have recently filed federal civil complaints challenging these cruel and inhumane living conditions. I firmly believe this lockdown is connected to an ongoing K2 epidemic all over TPCS and especially the Easton Unit. Thank you, Keith Washington. The voices you'll hear in this episode are students in a college course that brings together incarcerated and non-incarcerated students in the classroom. It's a course in the National Inside-Out Prison Exchange Program. This one, a history class bridging Indiana University Bloomington and the Indiana Women's Prison, taught by Professor Nicole Siegel from the American Studies Department at Indiana University. This audio comes from a collaborative project where students were prompted to further investigate a topic of their choice. These students chose to explore the notion that prison is a place for reform. As they question this idea, they talk about welfare, time cuts, reentry, and vindictive justice. brought together a group of students from Indiana University Bloomington and a group of students pursuing higher education within the Indiana Women's Prison. My name's Carly. I'm a social work student at IU Bloomington. My name is Derica. I'm a social work student at IU Bloomington. My name is Hannah. I'm an undergrad student at Holy Cross College here at the prison. My name is Irene. I am a grad student from Oakland City University. My name is Sharon and I'm an undergrad student at Holy Cross University pursuing higher education. My name is Lauren and I'm an African Studies major at IU. My name is Rose and I'm an undergrad at Indiana Women's Prison. My name is Natalie and I am learning for higher education. We hope that you find all the information you might seek and listen to us discuss reform, re-entry, and social issues within the community because those issues are not only issues we're passionate about but issues that affect everybody. Coming to you from the Indiana Women's Prison, my name is Sharon. And I'm Lauren. And we would like to pose the question, is reform necessary? And if so, what in fact needs to be reformed? Well, what we know so far is that the notion of reform goes all the way back to the founding of U.S. prisons, in which the rehabilitation of the individual was the dominant strategy in the state's response to social marginality. In fact, Nixon agreed in 1972 that social welfare programs failed to reduce disorder and instead created it. And after implementing some of the toughest drug laws in the nation, Governor Rockefeller himself stated, let's be frank, let's tell it like it is. We've achieved very little permanent rehabilitation and we found no cure. Now, after knowing what we know, we also have to be honest and be frank. It's no secret that 90% of women in the, the fastest growing demographic of the incarcerated populace, according to data by Robin Levi, have suffered some form of abuse. Ideal reform would seek to investigate the circumstances that led to the incarceration from sexual abuse experienced as a child or even rape as a teenager to physical abuse at the hands of a parent, a spouse, a boyfriend, or any other significant other, or to poverty from not having something to eat as a child, all the way up to the struggles that a young adult faces trying to make it on their own. 
all these are proven precursors to incarceration. It is our belief that there lies the true issue. In addition, once identified, this is where reform should start. True reform should start in the community. It is a fact that it costs taxpayers less money to send a young adult to college at an Ivy League college than it does to incarcerate. At this point, we have to question, is prison the new welfare? Today, we're talking about moving reform into communities and the larger society, as mm -hmm. opposed to what seems to be the common sense notion that prisons are a place for reform. We need to remove our thinking of reform from the individual and onto society. If you think about some of the large issues people in our society are suffering from that lead to incarceration, we're going to be looking at poverty, racialized systemic violence, homelessness, mental illness, abuse. Those are the types of things we need to be focused on as opposed to the individual when thinking about reform. When you think of these types of societal ills or issues, social welfare is the typical means of dealing with them. The systems and policies that we have in place with welfare are here in order to react to problems instead of prevent them. Mm -hmm. Most of our welfare policies are designed to alleviate issues after the fact. So if you think back to the Great Depression and FDR, that's really where our welfare system got set up here. FDR created New Deal programs in a response to the Great Depression. The Great Depression was a societal event, right? It was a big problem that really um, lent people to a lot of issues, a lot of unemployment, economic suffering. Right. So we've yet to transition into making more proactive measures to ensure issues don't happen in the first place. We need to really start looking at more preventative measures. Society suffers from social issues, and many are intersecting. Mm -hmm. Systemic racism, poverty, unemployment, mental illness, abuse, etc. It seems like in a very real sense, instead of acting to alleviate these issues, we criminalize those issues and incarcerate the people who suffer from them. So the welfare system we've created seems to not work very well if we still have all of these societal problems and people are also incarcerated at rates higher than before. In the late 80s, and especially through the 90s, we're seeing incarceration rates rise at staggering numbers. This is also the same time that we're seeing a substantial change to the nation's welfare system. So during this period in the 80s and 90s, the framework for welfare was changing greatly. Politicians developed a welfare-to-work mindset and policy followed. The idea behind welfare-to-work was that by giving people who are eligible for welfare incentives to go to the workforce, welfare caseloads would decrease and families would thus become more self-sustaining. This idea, it sounds good in theory, but there are a number of holes and gaps in our welfare system that make this nearly impossible. Cash assistance programs are greatly underfunded. That is, cash assistance that people receive doesn't help nearly enough with the cost of basic living. They also typically require the families to work 30 plus hours a week. You know, although there are some variances in work requirements, uh, it can be a difficult task for families with low monetary resources. Mm -hmm. So families after this switch, families were no longer given assistance if they needed it. It became conditional. And rates of welfare caseloads did decrease after the shift from welfare to workforce policy. The reason being, people were just ineligible for welfare. 
the shift in less welfare caseloads made it look like people were successfully transitioning from welfare to work mm. and that these programs were successful. But this is also the same time that incarceration rates are increasing rapidly and tough-on-crime sentiments are attacking people in poverty, essentially. Yes. So in very real ways, society filtered people not from welfare to work, but from welfare to incarceration. Before I came to prison, I grew up with a mother who tried to imitate and exhibit a middle-class lifestyle. In the imitation, food was really founded on the back of bounced checks or repossession or bankruptcy. The stigma associated with governmental assistance prevented my mother from seeking financial help. So I understand what you're saying there. When I became detached from my mother, I left home at the age of 14 and I wasn't able to gain identification. I had to work modified hours until I was 16 years old to avoid child labor laws. I could not gain medical care or housing for myself until I turned 18. Food, protection, clothing, and other basic needs were found often through illicit means or from the generosity of friends' families who would let me live with them or eat with them. My experiences basically led me to believe that it was only through juvenile court intervention that I could have anyone intervene in my life. Child protection services did not look after me because of my age. Uh, however, they did take my younger brother from the home. So I had, I didn't have a guardian. And the only way to interact with the social welfare state would have been through juvenile justice, which of course I didn't want to do. I didn't want to have to spend vids in juvie. I didn't want to have to be away from a free lifestyle. I remember finally receiving the mental health care that I needed after I was incarcerated, which was simply mental health needs, developmental needs, um, healing from childhood trauma, how to respect myself, how to grow up. I needed a role model. So all of these things happened for me post-incarceration, needs that could have easily been provided by a social welfare state had it been accessible or available to me. But the serious crime happened first and I was committed into the adult penal system. Fortunate for me as well. However, the mental health that I received was at least mental health care. At least right. I had care. Makes now, sense. to compare it to anything, I can't. However, I do know that it is the bare minimum. I know that I have to seek the services. I know that then that means that I have to be able to admit that I need the services. And it's not always the person who's in need of services that can identify the services needed. So that is unfortunate. But I am grateful for the mental health care regardless. This welfare system isn't set up for success. There are lots of holes in it. It seems like it greatly needs to change. Prisons have served as an alternative for social welfare in our society. We can't just incarcerate people who suffer from systemic societal issues. Anytime you individualize societal ills, you're ignoring the system, structures, and problems ingrained in how policies and government work. We need to start thinking about creative ways to promote effective, fundamental changes in the structures that lead to harm instead of criminalizing people who suffer from the structures. Our welfare state doesn't promote the promise of opportunity. It doesn't promote the promise of independence. It only acts to disguise the filtering of people into the carceral state. Being incarcerated at 17 years old, I, I grew up here. Um, I was raised in prison, you could say. Uh, I've seen what I want to be, and I see who I don't want to be. 
I have strong relationships with my father, friends and family inside and out of prison who encourage me and motivate me to be a good person. I plan to continue to maintain those healthy relationships and friendships. Um, I have my associate's degree. My, my goal right now is to get my bachelor's. I'm running into a few issues with that. I'm having trouble getting my credits transferred. So um, it's, affecting, it's affecting my attitude a little bit. I feel I should be able to get my credits transferred. Um, so I'm starting over at scratch with my associate level. Hopefully I can get my credits transferred and get back into the three and 400 level classes. Other than that, maintain my friendships and relationships and keep a positive attitude and outlook on life. So time cuts are made available for incarcerated people. Once you earn a time cut through different programs, whether it's education, vocation, time will come off of your outdate. So uh, you stay out of trouble, you conduct clear, you know, that, that plays a role. You can earn a sentence reduction, which is a big deal in prison. It's an incentive for people to get out sooner. As a long-termer, you can get up to and no more than four years of time cuts. So it provides a bit of an incentive. It keeps you motivated to stay out of trouble and to do well and with the goal of maybe modification or, you know, they've got different appeal processes. But the issue with, as far as reform is concerned, once you exhaust those those options and you're, you're told no and there's nothing else for you to do, um, you begin to stagnate and you may lose hope and you may consider giving up and backslide. I think that this is a challenging aspect for someone with a lengthy sentence, you know, who we would consider a long-termer. And I think the question is, what is reform for a long-termer if the end goal isn't to re-enter? Why reform? What does reform look like for someone that can't re-enter? I believe that when attempting to have your, your case or your sentencing, when you're looking to have that reevaluated and, and to modify, you know, in that instance, I believe that um, things should matter, such as character witnesses, people that see you day in and day out, whether it's the correctional officers, your, your college professors, your friends and family. These are the people that not only were personally affected by our crime decades ago, but also who are the ones that have seen the change, that have seen the growth, and who are willing to give us that second chance. But those aren't the ones judging us. Those aren't the ones giving us that second chance. The ones dictating our future are people that don't know us, who are judging us and telling us no based on, I think that, you know, in my instance, let's say, you know, a 17-year-old girl that's sentenced to 100 years in prison, does it, do I need 100 years to reform? Is that how long it would take for rehabilitation to take place? And if it takes place before then, if the goal of incarceration is reform, is rehabilitation, who gets to look at me and say, you're reformed? Now, now try, now, now try again. Now you get to go out, you get to prove yourself, you get to, you've made these changes, try again. That doesn't happen. You reform, you rehabilitate, you change, and then you're still stuck. So then there's, now what? So at 67 years old, I mean, I, I'm not going to have family left. You know, who am I going to go home to? At, at my age now, I have family to go home to if that were an option. I have somewhere to go. I could have a chance at life, you know. If I have to wait that long till I'm almost 70 years old, I, that's going to be a completely different world. I'm not going to have any anyone to go home to. I have no knowledge. I have no work experience. I've I've never paid taxes. I've never paid bills. I've, I've never lived by myself. I was a senior in high school when I got locked up. That's the scariest, I mean, I, at that point, why not just stay in prison?
my concern is with offenders that have been in prison for a long time. Technology has changed, and for a long timer, the world has changed. The reentry process is supposed to be in place to prepare an offender for life after incarceration. Ensuring a true continuum of supervision and care, targeting a reduction in recidivism through an individualized reentry accountability plan. However, that is not always the case. What would it look like if the penal code were genuinely founded on the principles of reformation, not vindictive justice? First, I don't believe that Indiana's prisons would be as crowded as they are because there would be fewer people incarcerated. If the penal code were actually genuinely founded on reformation, not vindictive justice. Uh, this would be the case because a vast number of more than 22,000 prisoners in Indiana were sentenced because of drug convictions. People convicted of drug offenses should be receiving drug treatment rather than be placed in an incarcerated setting, which can exaggerate their condition. Many people who end up in the criminal justice system in today's society would benefit more from mental health treatment than to be stuck in a penal institution where the treatment that would help them become more stabilized would be sparse at most. There would also be more programs available for those who were interested in bettering themselves and improving their mental and emotional health. I think that even if the penal codes say that they're there for reformation, they truly aren't. In many institutions, there's a lack of opportunity, and if the goal is to reform, stripping away opportunity and labeling, it's it's counterproductive in itself. Right. So something else that you know, needs to change is mandatory minimum sentencing, the point system, solitary, anything like that, because at the end of the day, you're not being reformed. That is vindictive justice. Speaking from a personal standpoint, I feel like the system isn't founded on restoring a person because personally, I feel like if a person was basically sentenced, say for instance, I was sentenced to serve out 40 years, I came in, I've done everything I, accordingly. I've worked really hard trying to better myself as a person. When I came in, I was extremely young, uneducated, so I had a long ways to go. With that being said, um, I started putting myself in programs and doing what I had to do to better myself. Fifteen years later, here I am. I don't think, I don't look at life the same as I did as a 17, 18-year-old young adult. I'm a grown woman now, I think differently. So now with having just three years left to my sentence, if I was to petition to the court system to see if they would like try to modify those three years down, being that I don't, there's nothing else I can do to knock down any more time. I completed all programs in the facility back in 2010. So for the last seven years, pretty much, I've just done prison time. And if there's nothing inside of an institution for you to do to keep your mind going, it becomes counterproductive. So I feel like, I don't know, I, maybe it is in vindictive justice, because what would be the point in not granting someone who has met all of the requirements the last three years work release or house arrest or something that would help them transition back into society?
point in our research, we have to inquire if the individual is the only element that is in need of reform when more elements are at play. In some cases, the system may in fact do a good job of reforming the individual, but if the true issue is not reformed, then the possibility of the cycle of incarceration repeating itself increases tenfold, and that's a fact. We as a society have to then question, was successful reentry ever a viable option in this case? This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812 269 2512, or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.